Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called The Parallel Universe of the People of God. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, February 20th, 2011. About 10 minutes down the freeway from my house, physicists at the NASA Ames Research Center Center are monitoring 156,000 stars in a tiny sliver of sky called the Goldilocks Zone. The Goldilocks Zone is not too hot or not too cold for there to be liquid water. The goal of these physicists is to find life on other Earth-like exoplanets. And a few weeks ago they announced that they had identified 1,200 possible planets. 54 of which are about the size of the Earth and in the habitable Goldilocks zone. It boggles the mind, said Kepler's leader, William Barucki. Searching for lifelike planets is sexy science, but consider another one of the hottest topics in cosmology right now, parallel universes. Books like The Grand Design by Stephen Hawking in The Hidden Reality by Brian Greene, explore the notion that reality is composed not merely of our meager single universe, but by many plural multiverses, each with its own set of natural laws. The very thought, says the theoretical physicist Brian Greene, quote, would blow Isaac Newton's mind, end quote. I often wonder if, in addition to the joy of science, whether there's a wistfulness in this search for other worlds. Maybe there's a similar but different form of life on an exoplanet that's doing better than we are on our battered planet Earth. Perhaps there's a whole different realm of being where time is eternal, space is infinite, the laws of physics are unique, and our longing for magic and mystery find fulfillment. In fact, the Christian good news affirms something quite like this. A parallel world or alternate reality is not a bad way to describe the community of God's people. Jesus compares it to living under a different king, Mark 1.15, or to drinking wine that's so full of fermentation that it explodes its wineskins. Paul describes it as an alternate citizenship that disregards the ways of the world, Philippians 3.20. While Peter imagined God's people as a unique sort of nation, 1 Peter 2.9. And a few centuries later, St. Augustine would famously and simply call it the city of God. Wine, citizenship, a nation, a city. These metaphors suggest that God's community offers a radical alternative to business as usual on planet Earth. Life in God's parallel universe, says Leviticus 19, is, quote, not like the other nations, end quote. It's not like the life of a pagan or a tax collector, says Jesus in Matthew 5. It's something better and beyond living in an infantile way or like what Paul calls mere men in 1 Corinthians 3. 
Nor is this just a faint hope for the far future. Rather, it's a present-day reality expressed in the Lord's Prayer that's prayed by Christians all over the world every day. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Citizens in this new nation have no interest in conquering other lands or peoples. Its primary, primary measure of success is not its gross national product. Its people are not afraid of aliens and immigrants, but instead welcomes them. In short, the alternative community of God reflects the character of God. In the words of 1 Peter 2.9, it shows forth the praises of him who called you. In order to reflect God's character, the community has received God's commandments. The word commandments is an unfortunate translation that evokes all sorts of negative connotations, some of which, by the way, for good reasons. We shouldn't think of legalistic rule-keeping, which only leads to self-righteousness on the one hand, or despair on the other hand. We're far better off to think of God's commandments not as restrictive prohibitions, but as life-giving promises. Even an ancient text like Leviticus makes this clear. Leviticus 19, which includes the Ten Commandments, is part of a comprehensive and complex holiness code that regulated personal and community life for the Hebrew people 3,500 years ago. By one count, there are 613 mitzvot, or commandments, in the five books of Moses. These purity laws in Leviticus chapters 11 to 26 regulated virtually every aspect of being human. Birth, death, sex, gender, health, economics, jurisprudence, social relations, hygiene, marriage, behavior, and certainly ethnicity because Gentiles were automatically considered impure. They specify in minute detail what foods are clean to eat, rituals to perform after childbirth or a menstrual cycle, prohibitions against contact with a human corpse or a dead animal, instructions about nocturnal emissions, agricultural guidelines for planting seeds and mating animals, and decrees about sexual relationships, Sabbath observance, and even tattoos. Why so many rules? What's their function? Some of these purity laws encoded simple common sense or moral ideals that we still follow today, like prohibitions against incest. Others regulated hygiene and sanitation. Still others symbolized Israel's unique identity that differentiated it from pagan other that differentiated its people from pagan nations. Ultimately, though, the purity laws and the holiness code ritualized an exhortation from Yahweh that is as relevant today as it was thirty five hundred years ago. We read in Leviticus nineteen two Be holy, because I the Lord your God Am holy. God's community reflects his character through his commandments. 
Some people object to this as a sort of prison. To me, it sounds like paradise. Imagine a parallel world, an alternate community, where people didn't steal. Picture a community that didn't hoard its agricultural abundance, but shared it liberally with anyone who needed it. Consider what work would feel like if employers never exploited their employees. What courts would look like if witnesses never gave false testimony and judges didn't accept bribes. Dream about a world where women and girls are not trafficked for profit, where the aged, the alien, and the infirm are not marginalized, but instead guaranteed special places of honor. That's what you get in Leviticus chapter 19. Jesus takes this ancient text as a manifesto of his mission. He didn't come to abolish this ancient law, he says, but to fulfill, broaden, and deepen it. Jesus is not the end of the law, he says, but its goal or purpose. For he himself, we read in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3, is the exact representation of God's nature, which nature we, his followers, hope to reflect. Jesus provokes us to move beyond outward ritual to inward transformation, to live with interior compassion rather than mere external compliance. When that happens, he says, the people of God reflect the character of God. They incarnate a parallel world, here and now, that's nothing short of what Jesus calls perfect in Matthew 5.48. Perfect because it's not only holy, Leviticus 19.2, but because it is above all things merciful, Luke 6.36. And now for further reflection, consider the peace prayer of St. Francis of Assisi, who lived from 1182 to 1226. We don't know the author of this classic prayer, and it wasn't until the 1920s that it was even ascribed to St. Francis. By one account, the prayer was found in 1915 in Normandy, written on the back of a card of St. Francis but it certainly emulates his longing to be an instrument of peace, reconciliation, and redemption in our fallen world. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is error, truth. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope, <clears throat> where there is darkness, light, and where there is sadness, joy. <coughs> <coughs> o Divine Master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. It is in self-forgetting that we find. And it is in dying to ourselves 
that we are born to eternal life. Amen. The Peace Prayer of St. Francis For books this week, I review Gary Wills' Outside Looking In, Adventures of an Observer, New York, Viking, 2010, 195 pages. Across the last 50 years, Gary Wills has distinguished himself as one of our country's leading public intellectuals. After graduate studies in classics at Yale, he's been a professor for over 40 years at Johns Hopkins and Northwestern University. He's written 40 books, and his numerous awards include a Pulitzer Prize for his book Lincoln at Gettysburg. Among the stories in the present volume, he recounts White House dinners, sailing and yachting with William Buckley, plane rides with presidential candidates, and friendships with the rich and famous, which begs the question of his title, Outside Looking In? In fact, the title works. Gary Wills' parents never went to college, and his mother didn't finish high school. His father never understood why he liked to read every waking hour. After graduate school, Buckley hired Gary Wills at the National Review, but after a dozen years of working closely with the conservative icon, their friendship ruptured over Wills' support of the civil rights movement and Vietnam protests. Secular liberals, on the other hand, didn't trust his very public Catholicism. In fact, five of his last seven books have been about the Christian faith, and every day, he says, he reads his Greek New Testament and says the rosary. As an academic professor, he never joined professional organizations or attended their meetings. And although a professor of history, he's nonetheless enjoyed parallel careers as a prominent journalist for Harper's, Esquire, in the New York Review of Books. I have stood to the side of events, writes Wills. He reported on the anti-war demonstrations but never really participated in them. He's an astute observer of politics but refused to write speeches for politicians. His daughter chides him for dressing like a bum. He's been married to his wife for over 50 years and describes his life as that as a work, workaholic bookworm who was a conventional and colorless square. I find it especially interesting that as a brilliant polymath of a broad range of ideas, Wills nonetheless organizes his memoir around stories about friendships and people. And what a storyteller he is. Wills treats his subject with generosity and candor. He deflects any hints of self-importance with self-effacing humor. He takes his readers behind the scenes to his encounters with key people and events of American history across the last 50 years. Bill Buckley, whom he defends, filmmaker Paul Schrader, opera singer Beverly Sills, Nixon, Carter, Dukakis, Bush Sr., the Clintons, Jesse Jackson, Andrew Young, and in my favorite chapter, the oral historian from Chicago, Studs Terkel. In a fitting tribute, his final chapter is all about his wife, Natalie, about whom he writes, I could go on forever. The author is Gary Wills. 
the title of his memoir, Outside Looking In. For film this week, I review Inception from the year 2010. I didn't understand much of this two-and-a-half-hour complex science fiction thriller, but I took heart that that's been true for many reviewers. Nonetheless, the film is well worth watching for the cinematic creativity of writer-director Christopher Nolan. Dom Cobb, who's played by Leonardo DiCaprio, calls himself the most skilled extractor ever. He can reach deep into your subconscious to know everything about you, and even teach you to defend yourself against the same. That makes Cobb a hot prospect in the world of international espionage, and so he assembles a team to oblige an industrial client, who in turn offers him a road to redemption. But if there's extraction, can there not also be inception? If you can steal thoughts, can't you also implant thoughts into a person's brain? Cobb's mission is to implant thoughts into his client's rival. Nolan thus explores the nature of truth, dreams, reality, fantasy, free will, memory, consciousness, cause, effect, and time. The narrative switches between dreams and reality, and it's never clear which character is in which mental state. Are you in my dream, or am I in yours? The title of the film, Inception. And for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by Edmund Spencer. Spencer lived from 1552 to 1599. It's called Amoretti 48, Most Glorious Lord of Life. Most glorious Lord of Life, that on this day didst make thy triumph over death and sin, and having harrowed hell didst bring away captivity thence captive us to win. This joyous day, dear Lord, with joy begin, and grant that we for whom thou didst die being with thy dear blood clean washed from sin, may live forever in felicity, and that thy love we weighing worthily may likewise love thee for the same again. And for thy sake, that all like dear didst by, with love may one another entertain. So let us love, dear love, like as we ought. Love is the lesson which the Lord us taught. Edmund Spencer, Amoretti, Most Glorious Lord of Life. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, February 20th, 2011. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.